The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, if you guys got your Bibles, Mark chapter 9. Let's flip them open. Mark chapter 9. If you are new to the Bible, that is in the second half of the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. Mike, if you need help finding that, I can come. I can page number something. 844, for those of you that don't have that Bible. (laughs) All right, let's pray, guys. Lord, I I just really want to take a moment to um, just remind myself, really, more than anything, that uh, this is all about you. God, that we don't just... uh, we don't just come here to check this off our checklist. We don't just come here so we can feel uh, like we're doing what we're supposed to do, God. We come here because we're thirsty and we're hungry for something, and that something is you. Father, we are so wrong in our thinking. God, our thought process is so twisted and so backwards and so opposite of what you want it to be. And God, we need you through your word to supernaturally conform our minds to your mind to make us think like you, to make us walk like you. So God, as we attack this subject and, and dive into this subject, this one of our last spiritual disciplines, God, I pray that you would really convict in this room, Lord, that I would get out of the way, that, that my outline and my notes and my thoughts would not be what's interesting. What would be interesting is what the Holy Spirit reveals, that the gospel would penetrate hearts, God, that you would be here working. So, Father, would you raise the dead words that are about to come out of my, my mouth and turn them into something living? Would you raise the dead hearts in our chest right now that want to just zone out and want to think about other things and bring them to life? God, would you awaken our sleepy minds, God, that we might better understand your grace and your glory? And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, so you guys are going to have to bear with me a little bit tonight. I could probably curl up and fall asleep right in front of you right now. I'm not even exaggerating. Uh, I went snowboarding yesterday, and I don't know how to snowboard. So um, how, do I put, how do I put this gently? Uh, there's a certain region, gluteus region, that is very sore today. I can barely walk, and I, I, I just want to go to bed. But I'm really excited for what, uh, what I've studied today. I'm really excited to share with you. But if I do start snoring, just come tap me on the shoulder. Um, and we'll just keep, we'll keep going. Um, <laughs> so if you guys have your Bibles, Mark chapter 9. I uh, was thinking today on this subject. It's really amazing when you, when you think about mankind and when you think about humanity, the simple fact that every single one of us strive for something called greatness. What is it in mankind? What is it in humans that ache to be great? Is it in us that wants to be set apart, that wants to be different, that wants to be special? None of us want to be losers, okay? None of us want to be unspecial. None of us want to be, um, none of us want to come in last. We all strive for greatness in different ways. All of our movies in Hollywood, the pinnacle of the movies is the end where our main character and our main theme leads up to ultimately greatness, where our character in the end becomes great. You know, the rags to riches story, once he was no one and then he became someone. We all want to become someone. We all want to strive and all strive for greatness. 
this is something that in the very DNA, the very makeup of who we are, um, is there. We all want to be great. Now, Satan knew this in the garden, right? When he came to Eve, what did he attack? He, he came and he said, Eve, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to become greater than you are. And if you eat this fruit that God told you not to eat, then you'll become great. You'll become like God. So he literally attacked this, this, this love, this, this ache that Eve had to become greater, to become more. We all have it. We all long for greatness. Now, we all sort of look for it in different avenues, and some of us have a different idea of what greatness is. Um, for some of us, to be great is just simply to not suck, if I can use that, that language. To, to be great is just to kind of fit in, just to fly under the radar, to not, um, to not totally fail at life, uh, to just kind of look like we got it figured out at least, enough to where no one really uh, you know, cares or, or wants to, to dig into things too much. Uh, for some of us, that's, that's greatness. But for most of us, the bullseye of greatness is a little higher than that. For most of us, we long and we ache to be the best. Okay, we long and we ache to be the best at what we do, to be the best at our jobs, to be the best looking, to be the, the most intelligent. We don't just go to school, we want to be the best in our class. Most of us have this desire, this drive to want to be, to, to want to be great, to want to be better than those around us. We feel like winning somehow is going to validate our existence. If I'm special, if I'm different in the crowd, then somehow that makes me have an excuse to be alive. Now, um, not to go political, but this is really interesting. I was thinking today about, man, Donald Trump is just winning, right? He's winning in, in all of these primaries, and I'm thinking, this is it. This is why he's winning, because his message is hitting at the heart of what every human being wants. He's saying, we're going to make America what? Great again, right? And that's what we all want. We want to be great. We want to be the best country. We don't want to just be a country. We want to be the best country. We don't want to just be a country that, that, that's, that's okay. We want to be the strongest country with the most money. And all of us want that personally. We want to be great, whether, whether we admit it or not. We want to be the best at our job. We want to have the nicest things. We all desire greatness. And really what he's doing is he's just hitting into the nerve of America. Everybody wants to be great, and he knows that. So he's selling that. The funny thing about our culture is you really have no excuse not to be great because we have so many subcultures that you can always be great somewhere at something, right? So you have the kid who's super awkward in high school and uh, he can't even shoot like a layup. He can't even shoot a free throw out of, out of 50 and, and he's super socially awkward. But then he goes home and he steps into cyber world and he's the man, right? And he's found his greatness in his own subculture, okay? Or you, you have the kid who... who um, who, you know, is, is literally uh, socially an outcast. He does drugs all day with his friends, and he, he contributes nothing to society. Um, and people would think of him as a loser, but he, he's found greatness in his little subculture, and his little clique. So it's funny, we have so many different subcultures. We have crossword puzzle subcultures. We have running subcultures. We have music subcultures, all these different things. And we want to be great. So if we aren't great at that, I'll go be great at something else, okay? Um, the internet has really made that possible. We have so many different ways to become great, and all of us are terrified of mediocrity. We're all terrified of mediocrity. That's why we charge our credit cards. <laughs> because if we look like we're rich, even though we aren't, at least we don't look like we're mediocre. We're afraid of looking like maybe we haven't made it. We're afraid of looking like we're not special. We're afraid of looking like we aren't strong. So we do whatever we have to do to create that image of greatness. Now, I've experienced this my whole life. <laughs> I've spent most of my life striving after greatness. When I was really little, I was really into basketball, and I would spend hours and hours at the court striving to be good at basketball. I didn't want to just be an okay basketball player. I didn't want to just be, um, you know, 
typical for my age. I didn't want to be average. I had this fear of being average. So I would play hours and hours and hours on the court to try to be best, the best I possibly could. And then that transformed into skateboarding and to BMX. And I'd spend hours and hours while my friends were at school, hours and hours on, on the half pipe in the backyard trying to get better because I wanted to be great. I had this fear of not being the best, this fear of being typical, of being average. And then that melded into music and I started playing my drums for hours and hours and hours a day and my guitar for hours and hours a day because I was so terrified at not being the best at something and it's been this this lifelong struggle and and then this really this reality of why do I have this desire so much to be great why do I want so badly to be great and is that desire wrong okay some of the most driven people in the world are driven because they have a want and an ache for greatness because they want to be good at something because they want to be the best in their field. And the question is, is that right or is that wrong? And I think really to answer that question tonight, we have to understand what greatness really is. We have to understand what true greatness really is. So, Mark chapter 9. Let's take a look at this story. Starting in verse 33, if you guys are there. It says, and they came, who's they? The disciples and Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, okay, Jesus asks the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Okay, so here's this longing that I'm talking about. Here's this ache to be great coming out and being seen in the disciples. On the road to Capernaum, they're having a conversation sort of in the backseat of the caravan, if you will, um, about who's going to be the best, who's going to be the greatest, which one is gonna sit at the right hand, maybe, of, of Jesus when we rule and reign. They're having this conversation, and then when they get to the house, Jesus asks them about it, and they're obviously embarrassed. They don't want to uh, fess up to what they were talking about because they know it was ridiculous. They know they're acting like, uh, like junior hires, not there's anything wrong with junior hires. They know they're acting immature, they're being ridiculous, and so they sort of evade the question. Now, what would cause the disciples to have such a ridiculous conversation? Not that any of us have ever had a conversation like that before about who's going to be the greatest, but what would cause them to have such a ridiculous conversation? Step really quick with me into the mind of a disciple. I think sometimes we forget that these were just normal guys, Okay, these weren't um, super spiritual, like the, the, these, these, these were just normal guys that grew up in the nation of Israel. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were different things, and they had an understanding about what God's plan was and what God's purpose was for Israel, okay? And, and in that understanding, they would have grown up hearing stories about Israel's greatness. They would have grown up hearing about Saul and David and Solomon, and when, when Israel was united before it was split into two kingdoms and when it was literally a superpower in, 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 in the, the old ancient world, they would have heard stories about the temple, heard all of these crazy stories about the greatness of Israel. Um, and in those stories, they would have naturally assumed that it must be God's ultimate plan to make Israel awesome. That must be what God, because if you read a lot of the Old Testament, that's how it reads. It seems that God's ultimate intent, when you look at the Old Testament, was to set up his kingdom through Israel and to make Israel great. So they would have grown up thinking, yeah, Israel's the preferred nation. We are the bomb. We are the place everyone wants to, to, to be. We are the, the ultimate people, if you will. They were taught that Messiah was coming 
to make them great again, okay? Because if you remember, during the time of Jesus, they're not a great nation. They're slaves, literally. They're, they're under control of Rome. Okay, they, they can't make their own decisions as a nation anymore. Roman, uh, Caesar and the, the Roman Empire has complete control of Israel and how they run everything governmentally. And so what they believe is going to happen is that Messiah is going to come and once again restore Israel back to its power and its prestige and its might to establish them uh, as having a footprint um, in, in, in the ancient worlds. This is what they think the Messiah is going to do. So they believe Jesus is the Messiah, so okay, great, this is what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come in. At some point, he's just going to flip a switch. Everything's going to go crazy. Rome's going to have to take off. Israel's going to be great again. It's going to be awesome. So understanding that that's the way that they thought and understanding that they didn't, they didn't get yet what Jesus actually came to do, you can imagine they would be having a conversation. So when this thing goes down, so when Jesus flips the switch and everything gets crazy and Rome runs away scared because now Israel's awesome and Israel's powerful, who's going to be the VP? Who's going to be the vice president? Who's going who's to be in power? I mean, obviously he's chosen the 12 of us to walk around with him so that when he gets on his war horse and he makes war with Rome and Israel becomes a mighty nation, one of us is going to get to be his right-hand man and they're arguing about who that's going to be. They're arguing about who the greatest is going to be in this kingdom of Israel that they believe Jesus has come to establish. It's really not much different than the average understanding of an American when it comes to what the Bible is. A lot of Americans' idea of Christianity is that it's some sort of a moral code that you live your life by, and greatness happens if you obey the rules well enough and if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you pursue happiness. A lot of people think of America just like Israelites would have thought of Israel, that we're some sort of a chosen nation, right? That God has favor on us because we're Americans and that, that the world is better when we're the strongest. The world is the better when we're the greatest. This is a lot of the way that we think in America. It's a lot of the way that the Jews thought in Israel, that, that somehow we're a chosen, we're the best people, we're the best nation, we're the best this, the best that, and God's plan must be to establish our kingdom. That's what the Jews thought about Israel. Well, that's not what Jesus came to do. And will Jesus come on a war horse? Will he come to establish a kingdom? Yes, but his goal is not to establish the kingdom of Israel any more than it is to establish the kingdom of the United States. It's to establish his kingdom, Right? So in this conversation, you can sort of understand why they would be arguing about this, why they would be thinking that way. If God's ultimate plan for Israel was to make them great, they obviously would be trying to figure that out. Now, look at Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Let's see how Jesus answers this. And in this verse, we're going to see what, the answer to what is greatness. What is greatness? Verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve. So after he's called them out for arguing about who the greatest is going to be, he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now in Luke's same account in chapter 9, 48, uh, Jesus Tacks this on the end. He says, whoever is least among you, 
all is the one who is great. So what Jesus is doing here in the midst of this petty discussion about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to be the strongest, he says, let me talk to you guys about what greatness is in my kingdom. Let me talk to you about what greatness is in my economy, Jesus says. In my kingdom, it's a little different than what you're thinking. And he, he picks up a child and he says, look at this child. This is the picture of greatness. He illustrates what greatness is in the kingdom of God by picking up a child. Now, I want to kind of use that and use this story tonight to really look at what greatness is. And, and the greatness is our topic. It's to be a servant. We're going to talk about the topic of servanthood. And what interests me so much about the topic, the biblical discipline of servanthood, of serving, is that it's one of the only ones that Jesus said, if you do this, you will be great. You will be great. Every time that Jesus seemingly talks about being great in the New Testament, it is always attached to humility and it is always attached to servanthood. If you want to be great, then you become a servant. Okay, well, I have a longing to be great. We, most of us, have a longing, as I established hopefully in the beginning, to be great. We all want greatness. We all want more. Just like Eve in the garden wanted to be great and Satan played on that and used that to his advantage, we all want to be great. And Jesus says, okay, that's good. That's good. Well, here's what greatness looks like. And it's probably a little bit more than we bargained for. He uses this illustration of a kid. Now, I want to think about this for a minute. Why does he use a kid? Why does he choose a child? Well, think about a child for a minute. I have two of them, okay? Children, first of all, especially in that day, they didn't have rights, okay? And my two-year-old, she doesn't have a lot of rights, okay? She can't walk out the door. She's not allowed to. She can't leave her bedroom when it's bedtime. She does what I tell her to do most of the time, okay? She has to. She's submitted under me. So she doesn't have rights. She doesn't have the opportunity to just do whatever she wants, Children don't have a voice. Children can't vote, okay? Children don't have a voice in our political system. Children, uh, typically, my daughter's in the back seat, and we drive back hum past human beings, and she says, hey, I want a milk, I want a milk, and that doesn't mean she's going to get a milk, okay? Now, if it was an adult in the back seat, I would pull over and say, yeah, sure, yeah, let's get you a milk, okay? Children don't always have a voice. Children typically lack wisdom and understanding because they haven't had life experience yet. My two-year-old, there's a lot about life she doesn't understand yet. She's two years old. She doesn't know <laughs> that she doesn't know, but she doesn't know a lot. Children are physically weaker, right? They're physically weaker. They're small. And children are ultimately under submission. So now think about, contrast that with what we think of as greatness. When you think of greatness, this is the way we think. You think of having rights, when you're great, you have rights. When you're great, you walk into a room and people want to hear what you have to say. When you're great, you have a voice. You have influence. You have power. You have prestige. You're important. You're valuable. You're strong physically when you think of greatness. When you think of greatness, you're well thought of. You have a good reputation. Um, you're considered for things. You're wise. You're intelligent. You're a winner. You think of greatness, you think of a winner. You think of being powerful. Okay, a child could not be more the opposite of that. Jesus says, your idea of what greatness is is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. To be great is to be the least. To be great is like a child. A child has no rights. 
A child has no power. A child has no knowledge or wisdom yet. A child is under submission to its parents. A child is, in a sense, kind of like a slave. They can't go do whatever they want. They're under the submission and the word of their parents. And he says, that is what it is to be great. That is the complete opposite of what our country tells us greatness is and what our culture tells us greatness is and what our sinful hearts tell us that greatness is. You guys, we've heard this before, so maybe it's just fallen on deaf ears, but this is completely out of the box. When Jesus said this, it would have blown their minds. What are you saying? Greatness is like being a child? He literally says greatness is like being a servant. Greatness is like being a slave? Slaves were despised. Slaves were the lowest form of human. To literally belong to another human is the most insulting thing you can think of. And Jesus says that slaves are greater than masters. This is completely backwards economics. This is completely upside down kingdom. And they would have completely been confused by it. Paul understood it. 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. In Galatians, Paul again says 5.13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul refers to himself as an under rower. Okay, an under rower on a Roman ship was literally the people that would sit under, chained up, rowing the boat all day long, back breaking work, having to sit in their own bathroom. Okay? This was hardcore. Paul says, That's what I am. And not because I have to be, but because I choose to be. Paul says, I'm a bond servant. I'm someone that's choosing to be a slave. And he not only said to be a slave to God, but he said to you, the church. When he wrote, he says, I am a slave for you, that you might hear the gospel, that you might know the gospel. This is kingdom economics. It's completely backwards. Paul says, I'm going to choose to be a slave. That's what greatness truly is. Now, why is this so hard to swallow for our culture? Why is this so weird? Because everything in me thinks greatness is completely the opposite of that. Again, when I think of greatness, I think of power, I think of prestige, I think of having a voice, I think of being important, I think of being successful, I think of being skilled at something uh, in a way that sets me apart and makes me above others. That's when I think of greatness, but Jesus says it's completely the opposite. Why is it so backwards? Why do we have such a hard time getting Jesus' definition of greatness? Well, here's maybe one reason. In 1859, okay, Charles Darwin published his early theories of evolution. Okay, you guys familiar with that? This is a little bit of what has shaped the culture that we live in. Now, at the core of this theory, we find one simple truth. Weakness is the means by which evolution moves life forward. Okay, and with that, those who are the most fit survive, and those who are weak become part of the evolutionary process. So weakness is just a means by which for us to get stronger. And, and what that really says is that the pinnacle of life, if we evolved from goo or whatever it is, if we've evolved from this, then that means that life itself, the point of life is to be strong because the strong survive and the weak don't. The weak become the process of which we evolve, how we become stronger. Okay. Now the implications of that, the, 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 what happens when you believe that is now the goal of life is to be strong. The goal of life is to be strong. The strongest are the most praised. 
Weakness only, exists, weakness only exists to give way to strength. And Darwin's theory has flushed itself out in every area of our life, whether we realize it or not. Now our culture places emphasis on self-will, on self-determination, on self-sufficiency. To be thought of is greatest to be thought of as someone that's self-sufficient. Oh, that guy doesn't need anybody. He made it on his own. We, we tell stories constantly of, uh, of you know, the person that... that, that pulled themselves up on their own and went to school on their own and became successful on their own. And that is what we hold up as greatness, those that didn't need anybody else, completely self-sufficient, completely self-sustaining. This is what we think of as great. Humility is no longer thought of as admirable. It's mistaken for weakness. If you're humble, you're weak. You gotta be strong. We teach our kids to believe in themselves, right? Believe in yourself. Do it. Make it happen. Make things happen in your life. Go to school. Work hard. Get it. Go get happiness. Go make things happen. Don't need anybody. Don't rely on anybody. Make it happen yourself. Be strong. These are the things that we tell. We tell our young women, you don't need a man. You don't need a man in your life. Just go do it for yourself. You be strong for yourself. You don't need your parents all of our Disney movies, the very crux of them is them refusing to listen to their parents and going off and doing it for themselves, making greatness on their own. It all stems back to this thinking that the point of life is to be great, that those that are strong are greater than those that are weak. And Jesus says this is completely the opposite of how my kingdom works. And this also leads to emotional isolation. What that means is that you, if being weak is bad and being strong is good, then no one needs to see my weakness. So I will post the most perfect pictures of myself and my family on Facebook, and I will only allow people to see the strongest parts of me and not the weakest parts of me, because if greatness is being strong and weakness is not, then no one ever gets to see my weakness. No one ever gets to see that. And that's why we have in our culture such a hard time getting the gospel because the gospel is found in the soil of weakness. It's found in the soil of weakness. When we realize that we are weak, God can make himself strong and show you that you need him, right? And what, God, what Jesus is saying here is you have it all backwards. Greatness is weakness. What Darwin did is the same thing that Islam has done what Muhammad did, the same thing that every false religion has done, and that is to create a system of thinking in which man is the savior of man. It's a system of thinking that says greatness is when you are strong. You know, Islam does not believe in original sin. They, in fact, think that Christians are weak because we believe in an original sin. They believe they start with a fresh plate, and it's their choice whether they're a good person or a bad person. They can't think of anything more weak than someone saying, I'm born needing God. That's weakness. But that's Christianity. We are born in a desperate state of needing God. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins with no other option but God saving us. Man loves to create worldviews that exclude weakness. Man loves to create worldviews that gives opportunity to be great in his own eyes. And why aren't we servants? That's the question, okay? So if, if being a servant as Christians, if being a servant is so important, if being servant is what greatness is, why aren't we servants? Well, the first reason is because we don't measure ourselves accurately. 
We don't measure ourselves accurately. If I'm playing with my two-year-old and I'm throwing her up in the air, I feel really strong. Like I feel like, like, I feel like, a, like a monster, you know? I can just fling her up in the air, I can whatever. But then you put me on the line of scrimmage with an NFL football team and I will get tossed around like a rag doll, right? It's all depending on how you measure yourself. The reason that we don't think of ourselves as servants most of the time is because we're measuring ourselves with the wrong thing. We're not measuring ourselves with God and seeing, oh my goodness, I'd be lucky if I was a servant in God's economics. We measure ourselves with people lesser than us. I've heard, I've heard this said before, and this is good. You'll know whether you're a servant or not when someone treats you like one. You'll know whether you're truly a servant when someone treats you like a servant, when someone mistakes you for the person supposed to bust their table or someone expects you to pick up after them and your pride wells up and says, who are you to think? I'm not your servant. I'm not your slave. That's when you know whether you're a servant or not, when someone treats you in a way that somehow steps on or affects your rights. How dare you? I'm not your servant. Jesus said one man was the greatest man, other than himself, obviously. One man was the greatest man, I say this all the time, the greatest man in, in, in all of the world. You know who it was? It was John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist said, I'm not fit to loosen the sandal on my Savior's feet. He said, I must decrease that he may increase. John the Baptist was a servant. And that's what made him great. Because John the Baptist measured himself against God. John the Baptist measured himself against Jesus and found himself wanting. We don't serve other people because we think we're more important than them. That's truly the reason why. We don't serve people and we think we're above certain things because we think we're above certain people. We think we're too good to work certain jobs. I think it all the time. Would I, have to, would I go flip burgers if I had to? Probably, but I think of that as such a, a lower, below me thing. It's just, it's just, it's totally backwards. So what is a servant? Let's get into that. What is a servant? If you're taking notes, just a couple things on this. What is a servant? A servant, first of all, has a master. A servant has a master. Now let me, let me explain it in this way. Everyone is going to serve something. Okay? Everyone is going to serve. Whether you realize it or not, you're a servant. But the question is, who will you serve? Jesus says this. He says, no one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Jesus is saying is that you are going to serve something or someone. You were created to serve. You were designed to serve. The question is, who will you serve? Now, your default setting as a human being your default setting is always to be your own master. Now here's the, 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 the hard part about that, is then you instantly become both the slave and the master. It's cyclical. So you're putting bondage and weight on yourself, and then you have to go out and do it. And let me tell you, you're a horrible master to serve. Horrible. You don't want to be your own master, but we all are, okay? For, for the girl that... that, that puts bondage and weight on herself to look a certain way every time she flips through the magazine or Pinterest and thinking, I need to look like that, she's become the master and the slave. The master's cracking the whip saying, look more like this, and the slave says, okay, but the reality is the slave can't fulfill what the master's asking the slave to do. 
For, 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 the, for the guy that is so driven by his career that he's breaking his back and, and killing himself, trying to, 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 to be an accomplishment, to be great at his job, he's the master and the slave. The master's saying, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. Make more money, get higher up in the ranks, move up, become more great, and then the slave has to go out and do it. Okay, <laughs> what is a servant? A servant has a master, but the servant has the right master. Okay, why did Jesus say that my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Because there's only one master that is easy and light, and that's Jesus. He's the only master that will ever understand how to truly be your master, and he has crafted a yoke for you. So to be a servant, and by the way, I said it already, all of us are servants, but to be a true servant is to be a servant of God to find your correct master. What that means is, what that looks like flushed out is that I no longer do things so that someone thinks a certain way about me. I do it for my master, right? I I don't clean that toilet, I don't wipe up that or pick up the toilet paper off the floor or or walk the extra step to pick up the garbage and throw it in the trash because I wanna feel like a good person or maybe someone will see me. I do it because it pleases him and he's my reward. I do it because I have the right master. And in that, it no longer becomes burdensome for me. No longer becomes burdensome to go the extra yard because he sees me do it and he's my reward. That's the first step to becoming a servant. Secondly, a servant spends himself. A servant spends himself. Listen, we are created to spend ourselves. If you think of your life as a wad of $100 bills, Every second you're spending. You're spending your life. You're spending your money. You've heard that the time is money, it's true. Every second that you have is, is, a, is being spent. Okay, you can't stop time, so therefore you're constantly spending money. And you were created to spend yourself. It's just the way that it goes. In our story, in our text, Jesus chooses a kid, I think, very intentionally. And here's what I love about kids. They spend themselves, don't they? I mean, we're, we're all getting older thinking about things like, oh man, I, I need to be careful. I went snowboarding yesterday and I was like so cautious. Like I don't wanna, I just don't wanna wreck myself because I, I got too much going on and I, if I wreck myself, I'm done. Man, when I was a kid, I just spent myself. I just went, I just ran full bore. I climbed the tree, I did the jump, I did whatever. I just spent myself. We spend so much time trying to preserve ourselves that we forget that we were created to spend ourselves. Now that doesn't just mean go out and, and snowboard every day and break yourself. That's, that's not the point. But you were created to spend yourself. In fact, scientifically, we operate better when we're spending ourselves. This, this long distance running thing I've stepped into, this world of just getting out and, and running and training for a marathon, I operate better tired. When I'm exhausted from a long run the day before, I feel better the next day. Better than when I would just sit on the couch and do nothing. My body works better when I'm giving of myself. My body works better when I'm expending energy. That's how God designed it. How many things can you think of that work better when you use them more? Not your car, that's for sure. Every mile you drive it, it, that thing's losing value. The second you drive it off the lot, it's lost $5,000, $10,000. But our bodies, for the most part, the more that we use them correctly, the more they actually get stronger. It's a pretty crazy thing to think about. I had an uncle that just passed away, I think he was literally 102 years old, and he had cattle up until like the last few years of his life. He was in his 90s, still raising cattle, still out there every day, fixing fence posts, throwing hay, all of this kind of stuff, and he just wouldn't die. 
I mean, the guy was just like a machine because he was just out spending himself every day. I think retirement is killing people. People are quitting so early. They're just done. They're nothing to live for anymore. Their bodies say, okay, well, I guess I'll just be done. Nothing wrong with retirement, but spend yourself. This is why God gave us bodies, to spend them. This is why God gave us life, to spend them. Now, not just, this isn't some hedonistic message, let's go out and, and just live it up, okay? It's not enough to just spend yourself, spend yourself rightly. Because you were not designed to spend yourself on yourself, okay? You were not designed to spend yourself on yourself. We live in a culture that literally orbits around the self-centered mindset. Our economy is built on the ethos that is enough is never enough, Right? That we constantly need more. That we constantly have to have more. Life is to be lived and lived to the fullest. Money is to be spent. The climax of Western life is retirement. Once I get my RV and cruise around, everything's going to be great. The apex of life is having enough money to spend all of my time on me, doing things for me, things that are about me, spending my money on me. Work is, work is just simply so we can play. We make money so we can spend it on ourselves. Having our physical needs met is considered poverty now. Listen, we were not designed to live like that. And that's why we're sick in this country. Because we're obsessed with giving our lives and spending our lives for ourselves. Not just our money, but our time, our emotion, our affection, our thought process. All of these things are all spent on ourselves and it's making us sick. Jesus said that joy is found in giving your life to others. What did he say? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. He said, give it away. You can't keep it. Spend it. Use it. And use it on people. And use it on the kingdom. Matt Chandler literally uses the language. He says, you were designed to be literally wrung out for the gospel, wrung out for people, wrung out for your family. God made me to give myself to my kids, to give myself to my wife, to give myself to you guys in this job, to give myself to my friends, and to give myself to my enemies. He designed me for that. You were made that way, and when you're not living that way, it's sickness to your bones. Jesus is the perfect example of this. He's the perfect example of this. He gave every single part of who he was to serve you and I. Turn to Philippians 2, 3 through 18. Or 3 through 8, sorry. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. I just found this right before I got up here and I have to read it. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, though, listen, though he was in the form of God, Jesus was literally the image of God. He was God himself. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Understand the weight of that. The star breather, creator of the universe, 
all-powerful, all-omniscient, all-omnipresent God stepped into a broken human body and became a poor peasant carpenter and chose to become a slave that you might be free. That's what greatness is. The ultimate picture of greatness is found in our Lord Jesus Christ because he chose to be a slave. He chose to be weak. He chose to be broken. And he spent every ounce of blood that he had and purchased his bride. He spent every ounce of energy giving himself to the church, living a perfect life so we could have a perfect life, pouring every drop out Every word was with intention. Every moment was spent for a reason. Every second with every disciple and every conversation was giving himself for the church, for the bride. That's what he lived for, and he was the greatest man that ever lived because he made himself a slave, because he made himself a servant. By his stripes, we are healed. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served. I got that backwards. Flip that around. Man, (laughs) his skin was made with the distinct purpose of being broken for our sin. He stepped into skin knowing it would be broken, choosing for it to be broken. Guys, we have to see our lives as not something to be saved, but something to be spent. Something to be spent. Kent Hughes says this, he says, ministering hearts are disciplined to labor for they regularly move beyond their comfort zones. They put themselves in vulnerable spots. They make commitments which cost. They get tired for Christ's sake. They pay the price. They encounter rough seas, but their sails billow full of God's spirit. You know what that means? That means that mother, whose body bore a child and now has stretch marks, and your body is never the same because you've had a baby, you just spent your body on one of the greatest things you could ever spend it on. Don't let Hollywood tell you that you have to hide that and that you should be ashamed of spending your body on a prize, on a beautiful kid. That means that if you have wrinkles, you don't have to hide that. That means that you've lived. That means that you've spent yourself on your kids, on your spouse, on your friends. That means that you've served. If you have baggage, that means that you've lived. It means it's opportunity for God to heal you and to fix you and to put you back together again. We should be spending our lives, spending every ounce of them. Now let me just ask you guys, are you spending yourself on yourself or are you spending yourself on the kingdom? And that's a tough question for me to answer because most of the time I'm spending myself on myself. It's just true. How do you become a servant? I'll close with this. How do you become a servant? The reality is, is that you can try all you want to be a servant and not be a servant. I could give you 20 steps to becoming a servant and you could do all of them perfectly and still not be a servant. It's not something that you can make yourself do. Having a servant's heart isn't something that you can just replicate or transform through a certain process. It's, it's something that has to happen in a specific way. And if you're taking notes, write this down. To become a servant, you must first be served. Okay? To become a servant, you must first be served. 
Jesus, again, intentionally uses a child. Why does he use a child? Not just because a child is under submission and a child is, is weak ultimately and a, and a child, all these different things, but ultimately I think Jesus primarily picks up a child because a child has to be served. My daughter is incapable of living without me. I need to change her diaper. I need to take her to bed. I need to protect her. She needs a roof over her head. And what Jesus is saying is, in order to be a servant, you must first be served. You must first understand that God has served you perfectly. Real quick, turn to John 13. John 13. I'll start reading. You can jump in when you get there. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? See, Peter's confused. Like, he's, he's just tripping. He's got mud, and he's got, uh, you know, camel and, and donkey poop on his feet. He's, they're disgusting. They've been walking all day long. And here's Jesus, the Messiah, the creator of the universe, getting into his underwear, wrapping a towel around him, grabbing a wash basin, and doing what a servant only would do doing what a, literally a slave would do, doing something that would literally symbolize and show that you're more important than me. And, and he gets to Peter, and Peter's completely confused because Peter's still thinking of greatness in the wrong economy, right? He's thinking, why are you going to wash my feet, Lord? Why are you going to wash my feet? Look at verse 7. Jesus answered him. He answers him strongly. What, am, what I am doing, you do not understand now. You don't get it yet, Peter. But afterwards you will. You will understand. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. He's adamant. And Jesus answers him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but all, but also my hands and my, my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, verse 12, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, listen, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What Jesus is doing is illustrating for them the reality of how to become a servant. If you want to become a servant, you first have to be served. Why was he so adamant with Peter? Peter, if you don't let me do this, you have no place with me. It seems like strong language. It seems serious. Like he just made it a really serious thing. Well, it was a serious thing. Because as Christians, if we do not allow the gospel to be the reason why we serve, we'll never serve rightly. 
If we don't serve others because he has served us, we'll never do it with right motives. As Christians, we don't serve because we want to check off a list. We don't serve so we feel less guilty about our sin. We don't serve so that people can just see that we're Christians and be a good witness. We serve because we've been served. We give because we've been given. We become slaves willingly for those around us because Jesus willingly became a slave for us. That's the only way that we authentically can be a servant to anyone, anytime. And Jesus knew that. He says, look, watch me. If the king of all the universe can get on his knees and wash your feet, then you better get out and do the same thing. Because what that's saying is that I see others as more important than myself. I see myself rightly. I see myself accurately. I'm not more important than that person that has to pick up the garbage on the side of the road. When you push your shopping cart into the shopping cart receptacle, which we all do, and you guys all think the same thing, maybe you guys, maybe all you guys don't do that, but if, assuming we all do that, you guys all think the same thing I do, and that is, I'm a pretty good citizen. I'm a pretty good guy. Look at me, I'm putting my cart away. Now, is that being a servant? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Being a servant is saying, I'm going to put this card away. You know why? Because the kid that has to come out here in the rain and pick it up is more important than me. I care more about that kid than I do about myself. So I'm going to go put the cart where it belongs because I see him as more valuable. And because Jesus saw me as more valuable while I was dead in my trespasses and sins, while I was his enemy, he served me and he loved me and saw me as more valuable than anything. Because he was that way with me, I'm going to be that way with whoever has to put this cart away. You see the difference? When you throw trash onto the ground, you're basically saying, and we've all done it, whoever picks that up is less important than me. They're less important. When you pick up that trash, you're saying, I care about that person more than I care about myself. It's kingdom economics. It's backwards. Jesus is saying the only way you'll ever be a servant is when you understand that I first served you. How do you serve a boss that treats you poorly? How do you serve a boss that, that doesn't respect you and doesn't give you rights, doesn't give you what you think you deserve? How do you serve that? Well, you realize... That God sacrificially served you when you hated him. That God gave everything for you when you spat in his face. And we all have. And we all do. When you realize that, when you let the gravity of that affect you, then it's easier to submit and serve someone that is your enemy. Someone that hates you. Someone that doesn't want best for you. The gospel allows us to be servants when we understand it clearly. And when we let it affect us and move us. And as that quote even said, fill our sails with the grace of God and move us forward. So, what do we do with that? I want to I invite you guys to move into a season of service, including myself. Because I want to be great. I really do. I have this, this desire that I've always had, and it's manifested itself in so many different things. It manifests itself when I spend extra hours studying because I really want to look like I know what I'm doing up here and not sound like a doofus. Uh, I want to be great. I want to be great at preaching. I want to be great at worship. I want to be great at whatever I do, and God says, that's not a bad thing. That's an okay thing. You want to be great at your job. You want to be great as a mom. You want to be great as a dad. You want to be great as a spouse. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing, but you have to first understand what greatness is. And greatness is being a servant. It's being a servant. 
And I want to invite you guys, let's be great. Let's be great in Christ's economics. Let's be great in Jesus' kingdom. And that is to say that we are going to serve each other. May there never be something that's beneath us. Man, if we just applied that in our marriages, if I didn't ever look at anything and say, yeah, that's my wife's job. Diapers, yeah, that's her job. I'm not being a great husband at all. A great husband would say, my wife is more important than me. So even though I'm tired, I'm not saying I do this all the time, even though I'm tired, I'm going to get up and change that diaper because I see her as more valuable. And because Jesus saw me as more valuable, I can see her as more valuable. Serving our kids, serving that boss, serving whatever that area is in our lives, every one of us can flush that out for ourselves and see in what area and who we need to serve and who we need to submit under. But tonight, I want to invite you guys not only to serve here, but to serve out of the walls. And there are lots of ways to serve here. We have guys, I don't know if you guys know this, but we have guys that come in here faithfully twice a week and set up all these chairs. These are not just here. They, show, they don't just show up magically. Holy Spirit doesn't just drop them, okay? These guys wheel them in and out every week. And there's guys that have been doing this faithfully every single time. They're servants. Let's join them. There are servants right now serving our kids in Iwanas. On Sundays, we have over, we have like 120, 130 kids over there. And we have people serving those kids we have people taking those kids to the bathroom and, 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 and holding them when they cry and holding my son when he's screaming his head off. People serving our kids. Let's serve with them. There's a crew that comes in and sets up the communion. And there's servants. They come in and do that. They set up the communion. It doesn't just show up. That doesn't happen. I don't do that. They come in and do that. We have hospitality ministry. We have people that go to our front desk there and you can come and get info from them. We have people that are going to help coming up with our Easter service. We're going to have a big barbecue. We're going to do all kinds of things. We're going to need help from that. We need people to pray for our church. We need people to reach out to people in our church on Sunday morning and be servants. We have greeters that greet at the door. We have all kinds of people that Richard comes in and sets up all this sound equipment on Wednesdays for us, serving us. Let's jump in on that. Let's jump in on that. Let's be servants. Let's link arms. If you're interested in any of that, just info at heritagefellowship.net. Say, hey, I want to help. What can I do? Can I help with Easter? Can I help with kids? We'll get you connected. But even more than that, guys, let's serve our families. Let's serve our boss. Let's serve our coworkers. Let's serve those that don't deserve it because we didn't deserve it. Amen? All right, let's all stand together, would you? Thanks, brother. God, I thank you so much that you didn't just come to preach the gospel, Jesus, but that you were the gospel. That, Jesus, you lived the gospel. That the good news is you. The good news is that you came and made yourself nothing and made us everything to you. God, I just pray for humility to grow in this church. I pray that we would never think that we're above anything. God, that we could truly see every task and everything that we do as a way of spending ourselves, not on ourselves, but on others and on the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would be our master, that we would do things for you, for the reward that you give, not the reward we can receive from people seeing us do good things. Lord, help us in this culture. It's so confusing. Lord, we're so backwards. The way that we think about money, the way that we think about time, life, all of these things is so backwards. And God, may these spiritual disciplines, as we look at them and as we think about them and as we apply them, may these spiritual disciplines, as we said in the beginning, bring clarity to understand in a greater way your grace. 
So Lord, make us servants, we pray. Humble us, God, in a way that doesn't hurt too bad. Lord, we just love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, kids are out there playing. You can watch them. They're, sounds like a gladiator arena or something. We'll see you guys Sunday.